This is T. Earl Grey Hot, an unofficial Star Trek fan podcast from the Other Side Podcast Network. Anomaly. Hello and welcome to episode 94 Mark 2, still don't ask, of T. Earl Grey Hot, an unofficial Star Trek fan podcast from the Other Side Podcast Network. My name is Yannick, I'm the French guy from Switzerland and joining me tonight is someone who regularly uses his specialized hobby knowledge to get himself out of sticky situations in accretion clouds. Don't know what that means, but it's fun. It's my good friend, Dave. Good evening, Dave. <laughs> good evening, Yannick. Yeah, you, you'll find out a bit later on, I think. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of, one of my, um, my favourite uh, quotes from, the, from this, this upcoming episode. But uh, anyway, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. I am uh, very excited to review this episode, which was a, a great one, I thought. So we we'll talk more about that in yeah. the, uh, at the end of this uh, episode. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, so as we said in the introduction, this is uh, a review of Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 2, Anomaly. Actually, it was not in the introduction. It was the show title. But that was recorded like three days ago. So <laughs> Potato, potato. Exactly. So... Mm. Um, without further ado, unless you have uh, anything to add, I suggest we dive into the review of a said episode. Manifest. <laughs> so, in the teaser that was like half of the episode, we are about the Cleveland Booker's ship, where he sits quietly and remembers flying through a flock of falling birds shortly before the destruction of Quajan. He also sees Kaim and Leto, who were on the planet when it was destroyed by an anomaly. Captain Burnham attempts to comfort him, but is called away by the arrival of a guest. Booker, otherwise unresponsive, urges her to go. He actually said, I need you to go. Yeah, he was trying to get rid of her. Mm, definitely. Yeah, I guess he was uh, grieving and uh, one of those moments when... Uh, you wanted to be alone. I want to be alone. Yes. In her ready room, Burnham greets Saru, who again wears the Starfleet uniform. She tells him Booker is the only known survivor from Quajan, though Starfleet is looking for others of this species who may have been off-world. Burnham also reveals Booker has been numb from grief in the two days since Quajan's destruction. Well, I guess if my planet has been destroyed, I would be kind of in shock, even two days after the fact. <laughs> mm, totally. Saru explains that he will remain a village council member in absentia, but that Starfleet needs him now. Burnham congratulates Saru on being offered command of the USS Sojourner. Saru replies that while he one day would like to return to the captain's chair, this is not the time. He offers to serve as a second pair of trusted eyes to Burnham, as she did for him when he first became captain. She did not hesitate. No. She didn't even think about it. The moment he suggested it, out went the hand. 
Yes, yes. It's like she was expecting that some somehow, or at the very least, hoping it. Like she was, she was very glad he was offered the chair on the sojourner. But mm. I think she was kind of hoping he would say, "No, I'm going to stay with you." Yes, yes. And of course, this answers the question that we were asking last week about who would be number one on Discovery. Yeah. Should have seen this coming, actually. Did, did, we, did, did, did one of us mention the possibility of Saru coming back? I can't remember. We mentioned the possibility that he would come back as an ambassador. That was it. An ambassador yeah. to um, Kaminar. Yes. Uh, that's that, but mm. we didn't see that coming as... Uh, we didn't see him ca- um, coming back as the number one. I didn't no. see the the, the the pips on his collar. Um, what what uh, rank is uh, Sar? Do you remember? I believe he is still captain. Oh, so that's why he was called captain when he. Yeah, it was. It was, like, it was either Detmer or um, Washington oh, that, that, that referred to him as. Oh no, it was it was um, Nielsen um, called him yeah. captain. That's uh, later on in the episode. Yes. Yes, but obviously. Although he may hold the rank of captain, he's not fulfilling the role of captain, so yes. you don't call him captain. Yes, many times we, we've said that, that um, captain is a rank and also a position. And yes. At this time, there are two captains on the bridge, one has the position of captain. Yes. All right, so we'll come back on that when we arrive at this, uh, this part of the uh, episode. That's actually down the page. In a briefing at headquarters, Commander Paul Stamets explains that the anomaly that hit Quajan and Deep Space Repair Beta 6 is a massive five light years in diameter. Shocking Federation President Lyra Rilak. Stamets and Lieutenant Sylvia Tilly explain they are flummoxed by the anomaly and that their current theory is that it is a roving binary black hole two black holes that are merging and creating huge gravitational waves in the process. Quajan was destroyed because it was closer to the source of the waves. The station, farther away, was able to survive its initial impact. Rilak asks why no one saw the anomaly approaching. Tilly responds that black holes are largely undetectable unless debris is actively falling into them. Yeah, that's the point of a black hole, right? You don't see... Nothing was, gets out, even even light doesn't get out, so you can't no, exactly. really see them. Stamets brings up holographic simulations based on their theory that seem to account for what happened to Quajan. Just then, Booker enters the room, creating an awkward atmosphere. He asks them to continue. The simulation shows the destruction of Quajan. No planet could withstand such stresses. So did you notice the Ferengi... In the crowd, I didn't, but Caroline did. Ah. She because when they were they were dotting around all the people that were around the room, yes. and she just said, "Was that a Ferengi I just saw?" <laughs> and I missed it the first time around. And to be honest, when I watched it again in order to to follow the review, I missed it again. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> it's not it's, very observational. Just like two, three seconds, not maybe not even three mm. seconds. But I was like, "Whoa, there's a Ferengi in there!" Yeah, yeah. Their models indicate the anomaly will enter the Riscott system soon, and Rilak orders an immediate evacuation. Other Starfleet captains have numerous questions, but Burnham says the only way to find answers is to collect more data. 
NIVAR president Tiurina offers the service of the NIVAR Science Institute in analyzing any data, explaining that while NIVAR is not a federation member, such a crisis requires contribution from all allies. Tiurina also warns of potential civil unrest. Mm. Well, I guess when you're about to announce to a system that it's going to get destroyed, there is a chance of uh, of unrest. Yeah, completely. Um, it's a good call out on on Tarina's part because obviously they're looking yeah. at how how we're going to cope with continuing survival on any planetary system that's going to be aff- well anything in the risk system that's going to be affected by the uh, by the anomaly. And of course, it falls to the more <laughs> the more logical of, um, of of species to say, what about the the, the people themselves? Mm-hmm. How are they going to react to it? I mean. <laughs> When a city needs to be evacuated right now on on, on this planet at, at this time, it's already like a huge, huge trouble. I, I just I just can't imagine how they can manage evacuating a, a full planetary system. That's gonna be one hell of a job. I presume they've got the technology to be able to do it. I, I suppose in in that particular time where you can beam potentially thousands of people off of a planet onto nearby ships it would be the equivalent of trying to evacuate a city the size of new york in two taxis yeah probably actually is it is it isn't it what picard tried to do with the, the when, when he went back to see the quet milat there was some discussion you know when he, he went to was it a bar or something? And uh, and and he was uh, he was uh, almost attacked. Was that the scene where he walked away from the bar and managed to get himself beamed out while he was still walking? And we pulled that entire scene apart. Yes, yes. <laughs> Isn't it funny what you remember? Um, but I don't remember the evacuation of the, the well, Romulan it, evacuation. It, it was in the past. It was something that, but I guess nine hundred years passed in the, since then. But also. The burn. So I don't know. It's going to be a mess. It's probably one of the uh, secondary teams that are going to do that, like the lower decks and things like that. But that—that's what Tarina mentioned um, in this particular conversation about yes. civil unrest was because of how the the world is and how civilizations are behaving as a result of the burn. They're a lot more cautious yes. and and concerned. About USS Discovery, Tilly acts awkwardly while walking down a corridor with Saru. She asks if he has gotten taller. Saru says he has not, and Tilly posits he has more swagger, which, she assures him, is a compliment. Tilly shares her discomfort in the wake of the death of Commodore Nalas and the destruction of Quajan, marveling at her smallness in the cosmos. But Saru argues that how each individual spends their time matters. Well, I guess it's about time for her to realize that she's only a little speck of dust in the universe. I mean, she's been in space for quite a while now. <laughs> she should have realized that earlier. You would have thought so, definitely. But I suppose if you think about where they've come from in the 23rd century, discovery was very much an anomaly in its own time. Yes, true. so they would have been fairly pretty much on their own anyway, and then when they moved uh, thrown into the thirty whatever it was 
33rd century, 32nd century, they're on their own again. And then all yeah. of a sudden, they've rejoined with the Federation. They've actually become a part of the Federation. And they're suddenly realizing, actually, this is such a big thing that we're a part of. I, yeah. I can see how she was, he, how she's, why she's reacted the way she has. Because suddenly, you're not actually as important as you might think. Yeah. Add on top of that, the humans tend to think that they are the most precious thing in the universe. Well, that's what we think right now. But yeah, yeah. But I think that's common of most species where they have, where they're in a position to think that they have supremacy. Yes. This is the first time I've noticed that the new uniforms have a drop on the left. A drop on the left. Yeah. So where the the, the two halves of the of the uniform join. Mm-hmm. And when they go down to the bottom of the of the of the of the shirt of the the, mm-hmm. the jacket, if you like, the left hand side of it is lower than the right. You know how it is when you get up in the morning, you're half asleep, you put your shirt <laughs> on, and you miss button your shirt, yeah. and you, you've got the button in the hole below it, and you've got a mm-hmm. bit that hangs down. Well, actually, the uniform for that particular era, the left hand side. Thank you, asymmetrical. There's a word. Um, the the <laughs> uniform <laughs> thank you, is. It comes down lower on the left-hand side, front and back, than the right. Okay, I didn't notice. No, I did not notice it, that. It's it's by design. I, I'm I'm sure there's a reason for it. Oh, maybe not. Maybe it's just nice, <laughs> good looking. It's hype. Are they great uniforms? I like. I love yeah. the uniforms. I think uh, they are good. I do like they're being strangled though. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like uh, dress uniform. You know, the dress uniform mm. is usually very tight around the neck well you'd think that with with operational uniforms they would need to be as um flexible and, and as comfortable as they possibly can do but actually they, these don't look comfortable at all because you're like that's the entire time yeah well we don't we don't know they might be very comfortable uh, hopefully for them they don't look it T and saru arrive on the bridge where lieutenant commander johan owosekun addresses saru as captain he asks to be addressed simply as Saru, but Panam suggests instead Mr. Saru, to which he responds, that would be acceptable. <laughs> and I was like, that's Spock, that's Spock in front of us, that's Spock. Yes. yes. Well, Spock was called Mr. Spock at, uh, yes. uh, at times. Yes, that's why when when Burnham suggested to be uh, Saru to be called Mr. Saru, and he started to say that would be, I was like, oh, he's going to say Something like Spock, and uh, <laughs> I think it was by design. I, I hope that it was by design. You, you think you did it on purpose? Yeah. Well, the writers did. Oh, uh, okay. I think yeah, the writers yeah. did that. Uh, yeah. Uh. Speaking on a shipwide channel, Burnham tells the crew about the danger they face in investigating the anomaly and vows to prevent further death. Discovery uses its spore drive to jump close to the anomaly. A polarizing spectrographic filter on the view screen reveals the anomaly, unnerving the crew. And me. And I did notice the squiggly sound this time. Yes. Yes. I, I, can't, I can't ignore it now. Every time I... <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, gosh, Devra was right. <laughs> oh, careful now. Yeah, I know. That's uh, <clears throat> twice in mm-hmm. this week, I think. Oh. Uh, probably. Ah, it's... Now, <clears throat> I have a question. Yep, go ahead. So, Burnham called for black alert. Mm-hmm. And then 
within, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds, told Detmer to make the jump. Yes. Was Stamets ready? No one asked Stamets if he was ready. Well, I think, you know, it's it's kind of like all those, those, those things that need lengthy procedure, like Black Alley, get, everybody gets ready to go to the... After three seasons, we don't need to see that every single episode. We don't need to spend five minutes seeing the crew getting ready. We know that black alert means they're going to get ready and they're going to jump. Right. So picture the scene then. Stamets is in sickbay. He's in medical. He's he's talking to um, to Culber. And then suddenly he hears the klaxon going off. And he's like, oh my goodness me, and runs back to the science lab. And literally throws himself into the into the pod, puts his hands, and then they make the jump. No, I yeah. don't think so. No, I don't think that's what that that's what's happening. It's like it's just a a creative shortcut. Like they, she says, black alert, and we, the viewers, know five or ten. Or, well, a few minutes are gonna uh, uh, happen now, but it's all condensed in fifteen seconds for us because we don't want to see that every single episode. We know what's going to happen. No. Stamets is going to get ready. They're going to boot the thing. You know, they're going to do all the checks. See if everyone ready. Yeah, okay. Now we can jump. Whew. No, I, I get that. But the way my brain works, and it's a good point by Lainey in the, in the chat. She says the, the process was shortened as we don't need to see it. Yeah. Well, no, because when, when, when Burnham says black alert, my brain's like, okay, well, everyone needs to be ready prepare yourselves, brace yourselves, Stamets get in the pod. It, that, that's how my brain works. It's not just a black alert. It's what black alert represents. Yes. Clearly I, it's just I, me. I get that. Yeah. It's like, I always come back to that, but when, when Stargate started, Dr. Jackson spent 10, 15 minutes every single episode learning the language of the planet they arrived. But by the end of first season, they just got there and everyone was speaking English. And they said that in the documentary. They said, we did that at the beginning of the series to explain how those things work. But then we didn't have to do that every single time because it's just a loss of time. So, Whereas Star Trek have the universal translator. So it's all, uh, yeah. it's all explained. Yes. Although we know that the universal translator needs a little bit of time when it encounters a new language. But we don't see that. Yes. So, we're in Act 1. Lieutenant Commander Kayla Detmer keeps Discovery at a safe distance from the anomaly, but Owosikun reports the subspace gravitational waves are not what they had predicted. They also are unable to see two black holes, potentially discounting their working theory. Tilly explains that there is an accretion cloud made up of gas, dust, and large amounts of dark matter surrounding a gravity well, so a black hole still fits. Now I understand the introduction. <laughs> However, Stamets says the gravitational Doppler shift from the scan is way off, leaving them perplexed. The ship's scanners cannot penetrate the outer edge of the accretion cloud. Obtaining the necessary data will require flying into it, which Detmer warns would pose a serious risk to discovery. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> Black hole <laughs> accretion. I don't, I don't know. Those yeah, are. Yeah, you be fine. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. It's the 31st century now. We do that routinely. <laughs> Black holes, whatever. 
Cyrus suggests sending DOT drones with sensors, but maintaining communications would be difficult. Booker offers up his ship, which is large enough to navigate the cloud, but small enough to avoid most of the debris. It can also change shape to compensate for torque. What? What, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, that, that didn't make any sense to me from a, a mechanical perspective no. either. You'd, you'd think that if it was under torque, if you try and change shape and the different parts of the ship come apart, you'll end up getting scattered <laughs> yeah. in all directions. <laughs> exactly. Because of, the, because, of the, because of the forces. Yeah. Burnham orders Detmer and Stamets to prepare to go in, but Booker asks to speak in private. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. I, I knew what he was going to ask. Yeah, there's there's a, a little bit of a uh, little bit of pride there. Yeah. Burnham tells Booker that the pilot must be clear-headed. Booker pushes back and they fight, but ultimately he notes that he is not a member of Starfleet and does not need Burnham's permission. And that's his, his damn ship. He can do whatever he wants with it. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Collecting the data right the first time may give them crucial information that could help save other worlds, he argues. And uh, yeah, he's right. Can't no. argue with it. No. In Sigbe, Dr. Hugh Kilbert and Unseen Adiratal show Gretal, still only visible to Adira, a holographic representation of his newly constructed android body. Gray is excited for the possibilities of having corporal form again, including becoming a host or becoming a guardian. Gray feels guilty for feeling joy at a time of great sorrow, but Kerber explains that life must continue. Kerber notes the artist created an excellent likeness of Gray by using a Sung-type synth body, making Gray marvel at the 800-year-old technology. Kerber explains that transferring consciousness to synth bodies was tried many times after Altan Inigo Sung first successfully performed it on Admiral Jean-Luc Picard. Yes! But that, <laughs> but that a low success rate caused people to stop trying eventually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. What, what a brilliant way to cross-reference uh, Picard into, into Discovery. I loved what they did there. Yeah. I, th- I thought I'd misheard it. No, no. The way Kelber referred to Picard, I think he said a certain admiral, Jean-Luc Picard, just like, you know, just another admiral for him. Yeah, uh, of course. I think his name was Picard, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. No one important. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. But of course, they would have never known him, because he was after no. their time. And before. <laughs> and before, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Then he says, "Loved the Picard reference." Yeah, yeah, it's um, great. I love. That. I, like, I like that when they cross-reference the series like that, like the yeah, um, absolutely. Archer space duck last week. But no mention of Kirk and the Kobayashi Maru on an episode no. called Kobayashi Maru. So I don't know. They, I think they missed a trick there. But this was oh so good. One of my favorite parts of the episode. So just speculation here, but does. Uh, CBS own the rights for the original series. I would imagine so. I think so. I think they own the entire back catalogue. Yeah, probably. Sorry, why why the original series? Oh, sorry, because of the Kirk reference. Yeah, yeah, no, remember Kirk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Well, having said that, that although the Kobayashi Maru was referenced in the original series, 
it wasn't until um, a certain set of films that I don't think we've ever acknowledged that the, the, it was actually properly addressed. That's true. Yes, I agree. Mm. But they referenced it in the in the original series. And you ask any any Star Trek fan about the Kobayashi Maru, and the first person that comes to mind is Kirk as the what the only one who succeeded by cheating. By cheating. Although amusingly, the only ref- the the first reference I had to Kobayashi Maru, bearing in mind I didn't see the entirety of the of the um of the original series at that stage, was on. Three, the search for Spock. Possibly, yes. When Kirk sent a coded message to the rest of his team saying the Kobayashi Maru has set sail for the promised land, which meant we're ready to go, get yourselves ready, because they were off to, to they were going to steal the Enterprise and go off and find find <laughs> yes. Spock. That was funny. The door, Mr. Sir? I see them, Captain. I see them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that film. Adira and Grey are concerned. Kerber replies that the survival of Grey's consciousness to another host once was a good sign, but says that they can ask Guardian Z once the synthetic body is ready. He also explains the body will age as Grey would have. Grey also asks whether a mole on his hand can be removed, explaining that during his first transition he had bigger things to think about but that he had a second chance to remake his body. Kelber happily does so. I found that so odd. Yeah, because that's only a holographic representation of the the body. So yeah. with, is that like a template that's going to be printed on, on the Android? I, I don't know. I didn't, I, I, don't, I didn't really get I presume the, so. Yeah. And it was like it, like using Photoshop, removing the, the mole on the, on the hand. Which was a mm. pretty big mole, to be, to be honest. Yes, <laughs> not to be a molest. <laughs> In her ready room, Burnham experiences a holographic recreation of Nivar, Vulcan, when she grew up there. Saru arrives, and Burnham explains they are overlooking Lake Euron, where Burnham would run away when she was getting used to her parents being gone. Burnham asks Zora to deactivate the hologram. The computer picked the name herself, Burnham tells Saru. She asks for his advice on Booker. She explains that as captain, she believes him to be the right choice for the mission, but reveals that she has seen him struggling after the destruction of his own world. (laughs) Duh. You think? (laughs) Saru suggests additional safety measures in case Booker should try to take an extreme risk. Mm. So basically put a... uh, Guardian Angel with him. Yes, yeah. essentially. Best thing to do. In Forget Me Not, which was the episode of season three when Saru tried to bring the crew together after mm-hmm. the, the the jump to the 32nd century, Zora had a much more animate and, and expressive voice and personality, and yet when Burnham asked Zora to deactivate the hologram, it was like, "Yes, Captain." Yeah. Where's where's the where's the life gone? Where's the where's the the, the fun loving, sphere driven AI gone? I don't know. Maybe she's worried. <laughs> well, entirely probable. 
In engineering, Stamets is shocked that Burnham has suggested sending him with Booker on such a dangerous mission, given they are the only two who can operate the spot drive. I'm not sure it's the, the real reason. I think he's just scared <laughs> and using that as a, an excuse. Yes. He's, he's not, he doesn't strike me as the person who would be the first out the door in a battle. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, think that, I think you're right. I think you're on, on, on the button there. It is, it's definitely more fear than, uh, than anything else. Burnham explains she will send a holographic projection of Stamets, keeping his body safe on discovery and maintaining a tether with Booker's ship to maintain proximity and holographic signals to make it through the accretion cloud. She asks Kelber to be on the bridge during the mission. Stamets confides in Kelber that he doesn't know what to say to Booker normally, let alone in the wake of Quajan's destruction. Kelber recommends letting Booker guide him through his grief. Kelber is always calm and he always has answers to all kinds of questions. Uh, it's, uh, since he's, he came back from whatever it was, death or we don't really know yeah. where 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 is is really uh zen that's that's the 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 closest thing i can i can come up with is zen well he cuz colbert actually died didn't he we we're, we're yes. effectively we we've, we've got an alternate timeline at colbert on discovery at the moment because he came through the rift if i remember correctly yeah so he he's never been the same since he came back, but True. I, I think I think we've mentioned this before. He seems to be almost indestructible in in his emotional stability, and every time he's there for somebody else, and he's offering advice, and he's you know inviting people to to use him as an emotional crutch. True, because he's having to deal with all these things. Who's doing that for him? Who's looking after him? That's the good question. Mm. It's the uh, who's analyzing the analyst, right? <laughs> exactly. So my one of my two quotes of the week uh, came from that last scene. Uh-huh. It was it was just the, the 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 timing of it. I thought was brilliant. Where Stamets said, "You might as well blow me out of an airlock." Uh, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. That was the uh, spot on. Stamets activates the transmitter and finds his holographic self standing next to a standoffish booker aboard his ship. Trying to connect, Stamets awkwardly asks whether booker feels crumbs in his hands or tingles in his arms when using the spore drive, but booker does not respond. Stamets goes to pet grudge, but booker warns against it as hollows freak her out because she cannot smell them. He stores grudge safely elsewhere. Booker expresses anger that Stamets is there as a minder, but Stamets insists he is there for his scientific expertise. Now, I wonder where he puts grudge and how he secured grudge, because I I, I just can't imagine he put how do you call those those things you used to strap straps. He didn't put straps around Grudge to secure her, you know, on a shelf or on a bed, or I don't know what he did with it, with, with Grudge, but I would really like to find out. 
he has used that phrase before, securing grudge. And yeah. I can't remember if we saw something at the beginning midpoint of season three where we actually, when he said he was going to secure her because he was going to do something silly with his ship, that he just moved Grudge into a different room. Yeah. Maybe a different room that had more protections or I don't know, but I I, I don't think he, he didn't strap her, strap her in. No, no, I don't. Put I don't a seatbelt so. on her or, or even put her in a, <laughs> in like a carrier, a cage. Yeah. There again, you I, I wouldn't have queen in a cage. I, I would. But I would be very interested in knowing how he does that. Mm. Maybe, yeah. Maybe he puts her in, in a cage with uh, very fat walls, you know, very smooth and fat walls. So she can... Velvet lined. Yeah, something like that. Yes. Yeah. With an endless supply of mice. Yes. <laughs> Booker and Stamets depart, tethered to Discovery. Right. Did you notice something in th- in this scene with Burnham? No, because I, I've, I've noticed something twice, so I'm going to tell you. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's real or if it's just my imagination, and I'm not sure if it is relevant or not. But if it is, then let it be noted that I'm. I will tell you right now what I. Uh, I've noticed. Okay, I'm listening. So when Burnham looks at the um, the view screen to talk to Booker and and the Hollow in Booker's ship, she's looking straight at the camera, which is something that is forbidden in filmmaking. Oh, totally. Except in some very specific situations, and I was like, why is she looking at the camera? And then it passed, but at this moment, I was like, what? Why? What's going on here? What, what was the circumstance? What, what, was, what was she doing when she looked? She was talking to Booker. She was telling them that um, they were ready to go or something, and she was looking at the view screen, and we were ready to get into the accretion uh, disk. Okay. She was looking straight at the camera for maybe, I don't know, two or three seconds. And and where were we? Were we on the bridge of Discovery? Or? She was standing, She was in the chair. We were on the bridge. So she was supposed to be looking at the view screen. But usually when, when that happens, the camera is, is uh, um, offset and the actor doesn't look straight in the camera. But there, okay. the camera was straight in front of her, of her, and she was looking straight at the camera. And and was it literally her head filled the screen? Yes. Right. So that's likely, and I'm, I'm guessing here. I don't know, but that's likely the view that Booker would have seen from inside his ship. So it may well be we were looking at Booker's view of Burnham on the bridge rather than us stood just off to one side of the view screen on the bridge looking at Burnham. But when they do that, usually you, we, we see the view screen from the other ship. Yes. You, you, you see artifacts on the screen or, or something like yes. that. Yes, absolutely. So let's get into my, my 
kind of have theory in there is that I think that was the point of view of something. And I'll come back to that at the end of the episode. What? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Well, not exactly what I was thinking. At this, at this point, at this point in the episode, when I watched that the first time, I was like, why is she looking at the camera? That's weird. Put a pin in, oh. on, on, on that. And, yeah, uh, definitely. You, you have intrigued me very much so. Yes. Okay. They quickly impact large debris, which Stamet notes it's likely because it just passed through a planetary system before realizing Oof. that system was Quajan. Awkward. <laughs> As they pass through more debris, Booker is reminded of the falling birds on Quajan just before its destruction and flashes back to images of Kaihim and Leto. Yeah, I was starting to think the, this mission was going to be a little bit uh, chaotic with Booker being, yeah. uh, you know, lost in his, uh, in his memories. It's not just that, but it's also he has the most inappropriate choice of mission partner as well. Yes. That's not going to help the situation. No. Meanwhile, on Discovery, a surprise subspace gravitational wave sends the crew flying into the air, where they remain suspended, helpless. Zora explains the artificial gravity generators cannot compensate, but the wave suddenly passes, sending the crew slamming on into the deck and sparks flying from consoles. The crew is bruised, but otherwise okay. Tilly remarks that Discovery should not have been affected. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that was very, very weird. Yeah, it's uh, really unexpected. And, and the way they, they were flying, it was really strange. So I've never been inside a gravitational wake, so I can't, I can't say for sure that it was not uh, a accurate representation, but it seemed weird. No, I mean, that that kind of reminded me. Um, this is something I haven't done. I'd love to. Um, they they do these um, specific flights. They're almost yes. space flights where you go up to a, a very high point in space, just below whatever sphere it is, um, and they go up hard, and then they, they kind of do a... When they reach the apex, they come down, and yeah. that kind of mimics because you're coming down at the rate of gravity at that height you're seemingly weightless and you float in the air for a bit and then all of a sudden you know your gravity will kick back in again and that's kind of what i thought there if they're passing through a gravity wave a a gravitation wave then they're going to be doing this aren't they so rather than it being a a false loss of gravity it could just have been a turbulence form of gravity except with gravity waves, the problem is that you're moving with the wave. So, you, I mean, that's why gravity waves are very hard to actually detect because we would move with that. You know, if you if you imagine a, a wave, a gravity wave, then every, the whole space would would move with that. And the the way they try to detect gravity waves is that they have detectors all over the the, the, the well at very large. Um, distance from each other, just in hope that one wave will just move one one detector and not the other one. Yeah, but it 
a gravity wave should not it could destroy massive stuff but shouldn't have that kind of effect i don't think it should have that kind of effect on people especially leaving them flying like that well no particularly not as the um the the, the false gravity within the ship itself and yeah. presumably the inertial dampeners within the the ship's infrastructure would kind of prevent that thing from happening if the ship does mm-hmm. this then sorry does this <laughs> then the people inside it are going to go like that with it they're not going to suddenly yes. stay in the air for for ages unless it was something that caused the gravitational compensators or the force gravity generators within the ship to fail temporarily which may be the reason why Maybe. zora said that the the gravity generators could not compensate what she probably meant was they're broken yeah i don't know no i don't know either but what I do know is that it was the end of Act 1. Indeed. And actually, I had another quote of the week in that last scene as well. Yes. And this one probably trumps the, um, the the blowing out of an airlock. And it, <laughs> when Burnham said, Zora, how long is it going to last for? Zora said, it will pass in now, thud. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks. Interesting. Thanks. No, but no thanks. <laughs> All right, so we're on to Act 2 now. Discovery was badly damaged, but the tether is intact. Booker's ship loses navigation, but ins- but he insists on remaining inside the accretion cloud to gather the needed data. Now, remember what I said earlier about Burnham looking straight at the camera. Yes. Now she turns her head to look inside the lab and talk to Tilly. And again, she looks straight into the camera when talking to Tilly and uh, Adira. And this time I, I was I, I sure, I, I watched it again, especially this part. And she turns her head and the camera is there and she looks straight into the camera, which... There's no view screen. There's nothing in, in there. And it struck me because that's something, as I said, that's something you never, ever do on uh, television or, or cinema, except if you have a good reason to do no, it. Unless for comedy effect. Or comedy effect. but Yeah. And so that's twice now that she's been looking at the camera. Kind of like, you know, if she was turning her head and 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 someone was looking at her in 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 the path between her and who she's talking to well th- to my mind there's only one person uh, in quotes person on the ship no that that doesn't make sense either because if she's looking directly at someone or something she must know it's there unless well the uh, like I was about to say, the only person or entity aboard that ship that you couldn't normally see is Grey. Yeah, but yeah, we would have seen Grey, I guess, from a, um, a cinematic point of view. We would have seen Grey. We wouldn't be in Grey's place. Possibly not. The only thing I can come up with is that maybe there's something else that we couldn't see some some kind of in, invisible thing 
And the only way for the um that for us, the audience, to know that there is something here is for the um the the, the writers and the producers to show show us something like that. You know, it's kind of like a, a ghost thing where if they just showed us Burnham talking to Tilly, we can't know there's something in the middle, right? Because it's invisible. But if they do that trick of putting the camera just in the middle of that and have Burnham look straight into the camera, that tickles something in our brain. And we say, well, there's, there is something here. There is a presence. But that, that implies that she's looking at what at what we are. No, no, no. She's looking at Tilly, and she's talking to Tilly, but in order to make us, the audience, feel like there is something invisible there, they had to put the camera in the middle so that we, we understand there's something wrong here. Because if you just film the, 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 the normal way, we, we can't see. We can't realize there's something there, right? It's invisible. But for that to be the case, whatever it was would have to be right in between. Yes. Burnham and Tilly. Yes. That's what I'm saying. So it must it must be invisible. Yes, that's what you, I've said. Usually usually in, in cinema, when when you're when you're watching an observer or you're taking the point of an observer, you're usually watching from a completely unreasonable angle. So for example, um if there was an entity on the bridge watching what Burnham was doing and we were watching from that viewpoint, it's likely to be behind her or uh, to the side yes. of her. And, and then she would be talk, um, talking to somebody in completely a different direction. Yes. But if you're, if you're suggesting that there's something there that is literally slap bang between, between you and me. Yes. And, and I'm now looking, well, I'm looking at the camera anyway, but that's not the point. Yes. But I'm, I'm actually <laughs> looking at something that's, that's in between you and the camera. Then, what on earth could that be? Exactly. Because if you, if you, I get what you say. For example, this could have been like a wide angle view from one of the the corner, you know, between the roof and a wall or something like that. That would make that obvious, you know? Like, why is this yes. film from, from this point of view? There's something Because there. you're elevated. Yeah. Yes. Here, it's, it's, it's that subtle thing where, Burnham looks straight at the camera for just a few seconds, just a few times in the episode. I might be completely wrong about that, but I might not. Does it happen again this episode? Um, I haven't noticed it. I have just noticed okay. those two two instances, but it shocked me. So uh, I'm, yeah. I'm like, if it shocked me, I have to put that in the review because... Maybe it's totally irrelevant. Maybe I'm just imagining things, but maybe not. So, totally, no, no, absolutely. Um, I'll now be hyper aware of that when I watch uh, watch the next episode. Yes, in case well, it does there's happen also again. one last thing at the end of the episode that uh, I want to uh, add okay. to that. So, <laughs> excellent. All right, Tilly and Adira, who has a cracked rib work to figure out why Discovery was so badly impacted. Adira feels Tilly is second-guessing their work, but Tilly snaps that in Starfleet everyone's work is double and triple-checked. She also orders them to incorporate the new data in the 
uh, on the irregular gravitational strain on discovery. As Calbert heals one of Tilly's wounds, she confides that she feels she's stametsing right now. <laughs> Calbert replies that Adira looks up to Tilly, which seems to unnerve her slightly. Adira returns with the updated calculations. They have just seconds to warm Burnham before another disturbance hits the ship, again sending the crew flying. No. No. No? I don't... No. No. No? They actually had about 10 seconds. But by the time that Tilly explained that she had bad news, at that point they only then had two seconds. And by the yeah. time she'd actually said the words two seconds, the two seconds had already gone. Yeah. So by the time she'd finished faffing around, probably for our benefit, saying, oh, I've got some bad news, uh, and that is that the anomaly... Uh, maybe, you know, brace yourself might have been more appropriate. <laughs> Could have been, yes. Could have been. Yeah. Nilsson reports that another hit will destroy the artificial gravity generators completely. Though Bryce suggests the hull may breach first. <laughs> choose your uh, choose your death. <laughs> choose, yeah, exactly. Chile reports they have four minutes before the next hit, then one and a half minutes, then 40 seconds. She cannot explain their irregular pattern. Well, she can't explain it, but she can compute it. Uh, yeah, clearly. Burnham mills pulling Brooker's ship out, but Stamets is unsure whether he has collected enough data to answer critical questions, and repairing Brooker's ship for a second's effort could take a week. Meanwhile, Brooker hallucinates Leto running around his ship. His attention returned by Stamets, Brooker recommends releasing the tether to keep Discovery safe, despite his loss of navigation. Burnham hesitates, but orders the tether snapped and discovery to retreat. Kobayashi Maru. Yes, but how is he going to, well, navigate through the cloud when he lost, well, navigation? Well, he's not. Is it just going, let's go our merry way inside this, uh, this thing? <laughs> no hands! <laughs> Yay! Yeehaw! <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, theoretically, he, he can go in one direction, yes. slightly faster or slightly slower, and you he, he could use bits of debris to, you know, affect his... Sure. But he's got no control over it. Yeah. I think he took this decision because, you know, he was effectively alone on the ship, and I thought mm. it was kind of like, uh, I'm not going to say death wish, but... Uh, it was. Uh, I think he didn't really care about what what would happen. No, absolutely, and I think he he has hinted as much a number of times during the episode, and I think another another couple of times we've not seen yet. Um, yes. But I, I can't remember whether it's. I think it's a bit later on. Yeah, it's a bit later on where yeah. he he acknowledges the fact that actually he is on that ship on his own. Yes. So he's, the way he's working, the way his brain is operating at the moment is, I can do whatever I like. You know, the only person that's going to impact is me. Yeah. Well, he's wrong, but still. So we are now on Act 3. On Booker's ship, Stamets still needs more time to finish his scans. The boson power unit emerges from the control panel damaged. That was funny. Thing just popped up. And I thought for a moment, I thought, you know... It was due to an impact and that some 
something got pushed through the control panel, but apparently just popped up because it was damaged. Like, yep, need repaired. Yeah. I mean, yeah. weird. But that, that means that it itself is made out of programmable matter. Apparently. So fix yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you <we> think so. <laughs> Booker directs Stamets to use a phase discriminator to repair it. Stamets objects to Booker's test stone, to which Booker replies that Stamets has spoken to him more today than in the prior five months combined. Booker accuses Stamets of having a bruised ego since he is no longer the only one capable of operating the spore drive. Stamets replies that he instead feels awkward around Booker because Booker saved Kelber and Adira during the incident with Ozira when Stamets could not. Just then, Stamets' scans are complete, but he cannot transmit them to Discovery or return his holographic consciousness because of a communication block. The data now lives only on Booker's ship. Couldn't he have mentioned that earlier? Yes, which makes me think it's a lie. I think Stamets realized that he he left oh. the ship. Booker would maybe do you know something stupid like throwing his ship on a uh, asteroid or something. Or oh, debris. I like that. And so he decided that uh, he was going to stay for a little bit longer. I hadn't I hadn't considered that, and actually, I really love that idea. If that is if that is the case, I like to think it's the case, if, even if it's not. No, absolutely. Some, uh, some, the the some... only thing that doesn't quite follow that theory is that it would have been um, Booker that instigated the data transfer back to Discovery because, well, not to give too much away, but a bit later on, he does. He does? Yes. You sure? Yes. Mm, okay. 100% sure. Okay. But... I'm going to stick with your explanation because I like it so much. <laughs> yeah, I like I like that. It brings a yeah uh, a nice touch to this uh, mm. this relationship. On discovery, Tilly and Adira have studied the anomaly and theorized that Booker could somehow ride one of the gravitational waves to safety. Bryce suggests adapting kitesurfing techniques he learned on Manarch 4. Accelerating into the distortion at a specific point would allow his buoyancy to carry the ship out. Without navigational sensors, Booker cannot simply guess the right angle and time, so Burnham will have to tell him when to go. So I guess that that's actually uh, answers a question. He lost navigational sensors when he says I've lost, nav- I've lost navigation, it's probably just the sensors. It, it could still steer the ship. Oh, okay. So my question was uh, probably irrelevant, as most of my questions. <laughs> hmm, not sure. Burnham waits for the right moment, but when she gives the order, Booker hesitates and they miss the wave. Okay, she says you have to act Exactly when I say, because, you know, it's like uh, half a second or something. She has her hand on the programmable matter thingy. Yes. Then she says, ah, get ready. Well, go now. So by the time she says go now and the transmission gets to to Booker, it's probably already too late. But 
anyway, and then Booker has to start the thing and and ride the the wave. This thing can never work. That's that's impossible. Well, firstly, they're tethered. Oh no, they're not they're tethered, not. are they? No. They're not tethered anymore. Okay, that that's that idea at the window. I was thinking the communication would have gone down the tether, so it would have been quicker. Um, but no, that's a fair point. Yeah, reaction time from, from both. The reaction time, I mean, I'm presuming that must have been factored in to some extent Yeah. to to, to the whole thing. But I think what really kicked it um, was, was Book saying, are you sure? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's, it's a very good point. I know, right? Well, give, give, give it, give it, give it another another few sentences, and then I'll um, I'll I'll, okay. I'll say something else. Stamet assures Booker another opportunity will come, and they have enough engine power for one more attempt. Booker is dejected and tells Stamet to pull off the hollow transmitter. "You're not even here. No one's here," he says. Stamet replies, "I'm here. We are all here." Burnham warms of another distortion in two minutes, but Booker is distracted by another hallucination of Leto. Mm. This is not going well. That's a heck of a guilt he's carrying with him. Yeah. Yeah. So, that was the end of Act 3. With Booker unresponsive, Saru urges Burnham to lean on her personal relationship to reach him. Using a private channel, including a nice and nifty protected shield around her common chair that prevents the rest of the bridge crew from hearing the conversation, Burnham insists that Booker could not have known about the danger and saved his family. Booker replies that he failed Kahim and Leto, but Burnham says he did not and promises that she and Discovery will not fail him now if only he trusts her. Calmed, Booker is able to guide his ship into the next wave with Burnham's help. The bridge crew waits tensely for several seconds before Booker informs them he made it clear and begins transmitting data. You were right. Saru congratulates Bryce for using his specialized hobby knowledge. Tilly also praises Adira. With a high five. Yes. <laughs> I like the um, how Saru jumped in uh you know the captain did her job she saved the day and all the things and then saru as number one jumps in and say good job everybody well done yeah absolutely yeah yeah no totally i, I would expect exactly the same and i've seen exactly the same from from Riker. yeah so yeah it, it it's it's the job isn't it the, the the number one is the um the the person's side of command yes absolutely yeah Definitely. This protective shield around the chair in this uh-huh. private channel didn't stop Stamets from listening in. <laughs> no. <laughs> True. Because there was no protective shield on Booker's not ship. Not at that, no. Not the other end. No. On Booker's heavily damaged ship, Stamets formally thanks Booker for saving Kilbert and Adira. He promises to figure out the anomaly. Calling back to their earlier awkward conversation, Booker tells Stamets that he too feels tingling in his arm when operating the spot drive. 
And I think we witnessed the birth of a friendship between yeah. those two. Oh, yeah, at absolutely. least respect. Yes, at least respect. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking friendship. The, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think there was definitely a, a mutual respect between the two of them. But right at the very beginning of the of the journey of the, of the mission, Stamets said to Book, "I know we're not exactly friends." Well, that's probably because you know absolutely nothing about each other. Yeah. But in that brief 30 to 60 second conversation, they've revealed more about each other and probably more personal stuff about each other than they would uh -huh. have done in you know a two-hour conversation with somebody else. Yes, yes, I agree. You, you don't do that unless you're willing to put in the effort to to try and build a friendship or some form of relationship with another person. Yes. But because they're both in the same same situation, obviously they're not in the same place. But yeah, in the same, in the, yeah, exactly. They're in the same boat, and they they have things that link them, and it's the acknowledgement of the things that link them that they have never addressed before has given them that that connection. And I I hope they build on this because that was lovely. Yes, I agree. It's a great opportunity. Nice. Yes. In a corridor, Tilly thanks Kelber for his advice regarding Adira. She also tells him that she has felt off recently and asks for his professional help. Kelber promises to help her figure it out, and Tilly departs to begin passing the data. So that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the conclusion. I she actually you needs a shrink. Passing the data! <laughs> she, that voice she used was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. So so yeah. Tilly Tilly is in is in, in in need of a of a counselor or a, an analyst or something. Uh, clearly, yeah. The the accident after the uh, at the end of the, the the previous episode that impacted her a lot. But uh, yeah, good to her that she realized that because that's one of the hardest thing to do. It's to realize and acknowledge that you need help. Exactly, a, a big thing for her and. Yeah. I, I think once she'd done it, once she'd had that that conversation with with Culber, she knew she'd done the right thing because clearly the weight had been lift, lifted from her shoulders. She didn't feel as much of the stresses and strains, mm -hmm. and that's why she was using that stupid voice all the way back down the corridor. <laughs> so, e even having that question, "Can I talk to you?" Yeah, that's it, step number it one. Removes, yeah, exactly. It is. You're you're absolutely the right. one. In their quarters, Grey congratulates Adira on their quick thinking. Adira tells Grey that Nala's death has made them think of Grey, who was similarly killed by a debris impact. Booker tells Burnham that she was correct, that he was not ready for a stressful mission. But, she replies, he succeeded by trusting her. He tells Burnham that he keeps seeing Leto and admits he does not know whether he ever revealed to his nephew, how much he loved him, especially after finding his family again after being exiled for so long. Booker tearfully admits that Kahim and Leto are gone. Another first step. Yeah, that's also a first step. A first step. Lots of first steps. So first step in acknowledging that they are gone. First step for Tilly acknowledging she needs help, and first step in the uh, the, uh, the 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 friendship relationship between. Uh, Booker and uh, and Stamets. So 
and also I think a first step for Burnham in understanding that she she doesn't have control over everything. Yeah, and that there are some some decisions she's going to have to make that aren't to her liking. Yeah, lots of uh, opportunity for character development. Oh, totally. On the bridge, Tilly reports to Saru that data analysis is uh, in the early stages, but that they have discovered a disturbing new fact. The anomaly changed direction while Discovery was nearby, explaining why the gravitational waves impacted the ship. They have no scientific explanation for what caused the change. More disturbingly, they will be unable to predict where or when it appears, leaving the Federation vulnerable. Uh, uh. So, mm. that and uh, scene before the credits, when Discovery got very small and smaller, and then that thing that appeared, is it me, or did that look like a Jayomus eye? It did. It looked very much like an eye. I've written down here, it also looked like the ship out of Flight of the Navigator. Yeah. And you're now going to tell me you've not seen Flight of the Navigator, aren't you? I have seen it <laughs> yeah, a long it time a long ago. Time ago. Yeah, yeah, It's like 35 years old, that film. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that was that was uber freaky. It reminded me a bit of that scene at the end of Men in Black, when the Earth and the, the galaxy and everything sort of disappeared into the, into the distance, and then you saw these kind of like alien people playing with a game of a uh, game of marbles yeah. and our universe and galaxy was that marble. Yes. And so that eye in the end reminded me of the two things I told you earlier, like some kind of yes. invisible presence on the ship. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if maybe, maybe we were all wrong here, but I, I, I thought, when I, when I saw the, the Burnham looking at the camera, I, I was just wondering, why are they doing this? There must be a reason for that. And then I saw this kind of giant eye in the end. I thought, well, what if someone is observing them? And then what is more unpredictable than a sentient being? So the gravitational wave moving, turning, changing direction unpredictably, could that be a sentient being? With Discovery coming next to it, it got curious, you know, said, what's that? And moved towards Discovery, mm. effectively ruining any kind of prediction. It's all in the air at the moment, isn't it? We're yeah. already We're only conjecturing, that's all we can do. Um, it actually does fit in quite nicely with what Tilly said earlier on about feeling very small in the in the universe and in the grand scheme True. of things. When we zoomed out that far and there was this huge, you know, unimaginably large thing. Yeah. Lainey said it reminded her of a, of a whale. And True. I didn't write this down, but I did immediately think of George and Gracie from the Voyage Home. Okay. The the two humpbacks mm-hmm. from the Voyage Home. Um, that that crossed my mind when I first saw them. That would be one heck of a whale. It would be a whale of a whale. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just don't know where to go from here. Yeah, exactly. Um, don't know. Uh, 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 hence a 
uh, anticipation for next episode. Uh, hopefully, it's going to be out tomorrow. Maybe, maybe mm. tonight? Is it? To- no, tomorrow. Tomorrow, in, oh, no, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow during the day. Uh, so, at the time of recording. At the time of recording, yes. Yes. Uh, it would, would be out at the time of uh, releasing this episode. But Yes, definitely. So, Dave, what did you think? Other than what we already said <laughs> just now. Oof. I'm I'm not sure I can add anything more to what we've already said. The, I I still found there was a little bit too much of the the smiley happy people scenes where something good happens and suddenly we see a, a smiling face of a washikun and we see a smiling face of Detmer and he said a smiley face of, of Adira and and we're like, Oh wow, what a what a wonderful place we're all in. Um and I I don't know. I'm going to say something really sexist now, but I wonder whether it is actually because we have a much more female, female and non-binary cast that the the the, the reactions that you would normally get from um, from blokes in that uh, scenario would be <laughs> <laughs> rather than you know a frustrated relief rather than happy relief. I d- I don't okay, know. It it it's 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 an interesting one. I think it's just me that this this affects. Not uh, not. I don't think it'd be a, a general a general feeling. But from a storyline perspective, I love where this is going. Um, you know, we're in two of thirteen, so there's yeah. a long way for this to go. There's a great opportunity here for the um, the scriptwriters to start really digging into deep theories about what this entity is. Uh, looking at the theory that you came up with that something is watching them yeah absolutely i'm i'm yeah. totally bought into that now we'll see i have questions about that theory yeah but i expected that i'm yeah but i hope that given given time and given 11 more episodes we'll be able to get an, an, a better understanding of exactly where they're trying to go with this but i don't want them to reveal it immediately i want them to take us down the garden path i want it to be um a an episode 11 or 12 plot twist where we'll yeah. go oh my goodness i just did not see that coming yeah i want all of our theories and all of our working ideas and the things that we put pins in in these episodes to be wrong yes because otherwise okay. it's, it's too easy <laughs> kind of like what happened with the burn when we realized that was uh, oh t- yeah yeah absolutely that, that one caught uh, caught, caught us uh, yeah. uh, Sukal. that yeah, one caught Sukal. us completely by surprise yeah no I mean as, as far as this episode is, is concerned I have nothing to complain about the the storyline was great the acting was great the the drama and I've got to say David um, I forgot his name now Ajula Ajela. Um, yeah. the the actor that plays uh, Booker, yeah. he is uh, he oh, is brilliant. Yes, he is yeah. so so good. Um, uh, 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 playing the the emotional bits. He even he he, he took me with him. Very much yeah. so. Then he says, "Every new season has been better than the previous season. I am really enjoying this show." Yes. Mm. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I was having a chat with somebody. I can't remember if it was online or it was at work. And we were talking about Discovery briefly. And I th- think it was 
it must have been before season four started and they made an observation about Sonika Martin Green and the way that she whispers all of her lines. Now I don't know whether that's a um a, a character device or whether that's just the way she acts. I've never seen her in anything else, so I don't know. But I had noticed that she's still doing it. She's talking in whispers and very low voices in almost she, all of her lines. She tilts her head. And she tilts her head, exactly. Um so again, I don't know whether this is a uh, a Michael Burnham thing, whether it's actually part of a character, or whether it's just the way she acts in high-pressure, stressful scenes. Maybe. But I know there are some people that don't like that. Yeah, well, they're, they're not going to get anything else, so... <laughs> well, no, this is this is true. You you know, you... You, <laughs> you, you take the cards you dealt with. Yes. But yeah, no, other than that, brilliant. Yes. I think Absolutely so. brilliant. Yeah, I don't have anything to add really to what I have already said. It was great. I was surprised by the um, the fact that she was actually looking at the camera. I'm just going back to that because that surprised me a lot. Maybe it's just uh, it, it has nothing to do with it. But um, yeah, uh, like that, um, like the episode, it was really a great one. As you said, all the main actors was was put on lots of stories possibility now that we have this relationship between Stamets and Book the character development for Tilly again even though Tilly has been developed a lot but we still have uh, potential here um, so yeah and I'm really excited about what is this thing we saw uh, in, in the end is it an eye is it a whale is it, is it nothing um, it, it, because it had a specific shape which I, I believe is the shape of a black hole and the um, the the the, the, the um, accretion uh, around the black hole, but who knows? I don't know. So we'll see. No, absolutely. Uh, something just occurred to me while you were um, while you were talking just then when you mentioned about the the friendship between Booker and and Stamets. It suddenly occurred to me. We picked up on season three about how Stamets and Culber have kind of formed a family unit with Adira mm -hmm. because Stamets and Culber have no other family. Well, in fact, none of them do now, to be fair, any family to speak of. They've almost adopted Adira as, as their child. Mm -hmm. But there's now another character that had family that now doesn't. So they're going to be feeling quite lost. I wonder if I'm, I'm really going out on a limb here. I wonder if Stamets and Culber may end up almost bringing book into their family unit. Perhaps, perhaps it's, it's a stretch. It's, it's it really a possibility. is. Yeah. But yeah, but with this newfound friendship or, or potential of a, of a blossoming friendship between Stamets and Booker, Maybe it's an opportunity for them to, you know, form, um, form that kind of friendship. I would, I would guess that they are of different generations. So, yeah, Stamets is 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 probably old enough to be Booker's dad. <laughs> probably. So there, there is that the, the the dynamic would exist, even if the um, well, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yes, we will see as we have uh, reached the end of this review. So I guess it's time, unless you have anything else to add. I've actually got a couple of bits. Of, well, have I now? Because I think we've covered most of them off. The, obviously, because it's a brand new episode, the the, the build-up of trivia is very low on, on uh, you know, this episode is less than a week old. Mm-hmm. They've mentioned the reference of uh, Picard or Picard's Gollum should I say in the episode the reference of Giorgio's telescope Mm -hmm. I thought was really nicely done because that harks back to the pilot episode true it was first appeared in episode one of season one yeah and this one I'm surprised they did I really am surprised they did this is the first time in the Star Trek franchise they have used the same episode title twice. Oh. There is another anomaly. Oh, okay. And that was in season three of the, well, say season three, the um, the Zindi series of Enterprise. Okay. There was an episode called Anomaly. They've had variations of. Yes, like uh, uh, The Naked Now and The Naked Time. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, no, this is the first time they've ever, they've ever used the same episode title twice okay mm, i didn't know that thank you no. for the trivia no worries all right so i guess this ends our review of star trek discovery season four episode two anomaly so thank you to all of you for listening to our show you can help us spread the love for this podcast by tethering a small moth capable ship to your chosen mode of transport and riding the gravitational waves of every one of our 94 previous episodes, or if you think that this has nothing at all to do with actually promoting our show, and you can actually do a lot better if you put your mind to it, you can simply share the address of our website on social media. Actually, it's 95, but we don't talk about that. And you can find <laughs> our website... And you can find our website at tlgreyhot.org, where you will see all of our show notes, our reviews, and of course, you can leave a comment on the bottom of every one of our episodes. We are also on Twitter and Facebook. Our username for both of those is TGH Podcast, and we are also on Telegram at t.me slash TGH Podcast. And we also stream the recording of these episodes live on Twitch Yay. over twitch.tv slash TEGH podcast. And thank you very much to Lainey for joining us throughout this episode, um, popping her opinion and, and comments and trying to drop parachutes on our Twitch stream uh, throughout the entirety <laughs> uh, of, of the recording. Thanks, Lainey. Thanks to Memory Alpha, as always, we have uh, based our review of this week's episode on their work, and this is released under a Creative Commons by Attribution non-commercial license. And I have been told that a certain Dave Lee made some corrections to said review. <laughs> so thank you very much, Dave. Yes, I did. As I was going through, I noticed there was only three acts in the written review. Uh, I found the point when I was going through, because you can tell when the acts stop, because you they fade to black. Yes, and then fade out of black. So that's where your act breaks are, and they missed one. So I uh, I fixed it. Ha. I fixed a typo as well, but then I f- forgot to fix another typo, which you pointed out earlier <laughs> on. Yes. <laughs> and the rest of this show is released under a Creative Commons by attribution share alike license. I am told that there is a page somewhere on our website that tells you what that means. If anybody finds it, please do let us know. It might be in one of those alternate universes. Is, ah right maybe Jojo found, found that yes 
This podcast is part of the Other Side Podcast Network. Check out our website at otherside.network for all our great shows and hosts. Indeed so. Our next episode will be our review of Choose to Live, the third episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Discovery. Indeed. and What a discovery. Yes, what a discovery, indeed. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you, Dave, for joining me once again on this show. You are so, so welcome. And we will be back next week with a whole lot more Star Trek Discovery. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Ciao, ciao. See ya. Ray is excited for the possibilities of having corporeal again from Gray is excited for of the His attention returns by during the incident with the incident yes of course You were just listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at otherside.network.